Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Another week of bringing clarity to the chaos is underway. This week, we'll discover how to live fearlessly for Christ with Ray Comfort. Terry James and Pete Garcia will reveal the New World Order's obsession with merging ancient paganism into modern technology. And Jonathan Brentner will examine what today's church can learn from the bad guys of the Bible. Watchmen on the Wall and Southwest Radio Ministries are celebrating 90 years of proclaiming the truth that God is still on the throne and prayer changes things. Today we begin a brand new series studying biblical characters who messed up. Why? Because we can learn so much from them by taking a close look at what led to their disastrous decisions and lack of sound judgment at critical times in their lives. Here's staff evangelist Josh Davis and today's special guest, author Jonathan Brentner, ready to look at and learn from the bad guys of the Bible. I'm privileged to be joined on Watchmen on the Wall by author Jonathan Brentner. He has a brand new book out called Cancel This, What Today's Church Can Learn from the Bad Guys of the Bible. Jonathan serves the Lord as an author, blogger, Bible teacher, and a retired financial analyst. And through his writing, he reaches thousands each month with his perspectives on Bible prophecy and current events through his personal blog, at jonathanbrentner.com. Jonathan, we are so blessed to have you. Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm blessed to be here with you, Josh. Looking forward to our discussion. You know, Jonathan, we live in cancel culture. And can you describe what is cancel culture and why is it such a harm to the church today? People in the cancel culture seek to cancel all of the things that God's Word says about marriage and genders and sexuality, and they seek to just overturn all of God's revelation, and it is a threat to us because they seek to force their agenda upon us in many ways, and unfortunately, the the woke agenda has entered many churches, which, which is sad, but the book doesn't really confront it all the way through. It's just the idea of, as we live out our lives and and walk with the Lord, that He can lead us in what He wants us to do and as far as confronting the culture of our day. And I think any time that we follow God's Word and we follow His truth, we're going to be counterculture. And I think all right. of these heroes of Scripture that we look at, when you think of Old Testament heroes like Daniel, Joseph, many others come to mind, they were counterculture just by following the Lord in obedience. And I think that perhaps your book is calling us back to that. Is that a fair statement? I would say so, yes. I do it with some of the lesser-known guys of the Bible and mostly bad guys of the Bible. But yes, it accomplishes the same thing because we can learn from their examples and how they apply to walking with the Lord today. You begin it very openly and frankly with the audience as you discuss how life is all about walking with the Lord, keeping Him in the Mm -hmm. central focus of your life. 
in the book, you share some of your personal struggles and things that you went through a season of your life. Would you mind relating some of that to our audience today? Yes, it relates to a time when I was a pastor and my life got turned upside down and and inside out. There are many tragic circumstances that happened to me, and it really knocked me down for quite a while. And for a time, I was actually angry with the Lord. But the one thing that I held on to was I knew that the resurrection was true. I knew that Jesus had risen from the dead, and I knew that He was coming again. And it was on that base the Lord started building my life back again. And there's some of the struggles I share about a long run that I had. I share this in the beginning of the chapter on Saul, where I was trying to force God's hand in a way by repeating a prayer over and over and over. I thought if I prayed lots, that God couldn't help but answer my prayer. But I realized that that was a foolish thing to do, and that resulted a moment that really changed the direction of my life as the Lord sort of caught up to me at the end of the, of the run and essentially asked, what are you doing? And it just really broke me down, and I said, okay, I want what you want for my life. And so there was that aspect of learning to trust God again, and there was also the aspect of realizing that this world is not all there is and that there's an eternity, and that's the most important aspect of all. And so one of the things I gained from my trials was learning to value eternity. I love preaching on prophecy as a young pastor, but during these trials, I learned how to really grab hold of it. It was sort of a mental thing rather than a heart thing, but through these trials, I realized that I had to place a greater value on eternal realities than on temporal ones. That's the plight of every single Christian, I'm convinced, is that we have that tension within us of the here and the now and the eternal realities. I I know Paul dealt with that as he said, you know, I want to stay here with you, but I'd rather go home and be with the Lord. And and he said, I'm really torn between the two. And that is something that as Christians, we have to come face to face with it. Are we living in light of eternity or are we making every decision in the here and the now? You know, sometimes I talk to young people and part of my ministry in local church dealing with teenagers. And I've dealt with kids over the years and serving them in ministry capacities And when you talk about end times things, sometimes some of them can roll their eyes and they say, no, my life is in front of me. You know, I want to grow up. I want to get married. I want to do this and do that and do this and do that. But they're not really Uh thinking about eternity is going to be so much better than what we experience in the here and the now. I think a lot of the characters that you deal with in your book really boil it down to that one commonality is that they were living for the here and for the now instead of thinking about eternity and what's coming down the road. And so as the book begins, after you share your own struggles, you quickly speak to those who don't have a walk with God. They don't know Jesus as their Savior. And you said when you went into your dark place and the questioning of your faith, you came back to that bedrock truth that Jesus is alive and that he is the Savior and the resurrection is a fact and he's coming back again. Can you speak to the people 
who don't have a walk with Jesus today, how can they begin that journey with Jesus? Well, the first thing is to realize is that you need the Savior, you need Jesus. And Cain actually had audible conversations with God, so he couldn't deny that God existed, but he never reached a place of saving faith. And probably the verse that's so familiar to all of us is John 3.16, which is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And just to recognize that Jesus died in our place so that we might receive eternal life rather than perish and endure an eternity without him because of our sins. And so many people today, they follow Cain's example thinking that they can reject his offer of forgiveness and depend on themselves and do things their own way, but they cannot. John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And there is an exclusivity there that Jesus is the only way. And then the Apostle Paul in Romans 10, 13 says, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will, will be saved. And so when we call upon him in faith, recognizing that there's nothing we can do to contribute to our salvation, but it's all of us, then he saves us. He does the rest. He does everything. It's that faith that itself is even a gift from God, according to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But it's not of works. It's strictly by God and him saving us. Amen. And friends, if you're listening and you have not begun a relationship with Jesus, I urge you, Consider what Brother Jonathan has just shared with you and call upon Jesus today as your Savior. If you've got questions about what that means, we encourage you to reach out to our ministry. We are talking with Jonathan Brentner about his brand new book, Cancel This, What Today's Church Can Learn from the Bad Guys of the Bible. And we encourage you to reach out to our ministry. Our number is 1-800-652-1144. Or you can visit us online at swrc.com. Jonathan, as you write on the negative examples in Scripture, what can we learn from these bad guys of the Bible? How can we learn from their mistakes? Well, one of the things that you'll see as you read through my book is that a lot of them allowed negative emotions such as anger, greed, and bitterness, along with a desire for revenge to dictate the course of their lives. And it became a factor in key decisions that they made over the course of their lives. And so one of the things we learn from that is when we feel these things, of course, you know, Paul says, you know, be angry and sin not. So it's possible to be angry and, and not sin, but as we hold on to that, it gives a place for the devil to work. And so many of these characters, they allowed these negative emotions to control them. And that was a key factor. That's one thing we learned not to do. And they also show us the necessity of understanding God's Word and spending time with Him each day and seeking guidance from Him. Now, a lot of these bad guys, they didn't have as much of God's revelation to us as we have today, having the entire Bible to read, but they had portions of God's Word, and we see evidence that some of them understood it, but it was not a factor in their lives. And so it's the necessity 
of knowing and understanding God's Word, spending time with Him. And it also underscores the importance of recognizing that this life is not all there is, that there is an eternity that will be much, much longer than than what we have in this life. And as we mentioned before, so many of these guys, they lived as though this life was all that there was, especially Esau. But he was someone who, who lived solely for the things of this world, and he was rather successful, but the Lord had bad things to say about him. He was not pleased with Esau. And let's get into some of the particular characters, and there's study questions built into each chapter. Is that right, Jonathan? Yes. At the end of each chapter dealing with a Bible character, there are study questions, and that can be used for group sitting, and and it can be used for women, too, I believe. And this is coming on the hills of Father's Day, and so, men, I know that you've been thinking a lot about fatherhood and those concepts as we've come through this Father's Day weekend. And now that we're going to talk about some of these bad guys of the Bible, some of these negative examples that we can learn from, one of the first ones you mentioned is King Saul, and his life is rich with a lot of, unfortunately, negative examples that we can learn from. Mm -hmm. And you referred to him as the king who didn't wait. What did he do that's so dangerous about not waiting on God? He was instructed to wait for Samuel to come before offering a sacrifice. And he was in a, an impossible situation. The Philistines far outnumbered him. And they had chariots and a huge army. Where Saul was faced with men who were fleeing from him. He started out with just 600 compared to the tens of thousands that the Philistines had, and he ended up with 300. And so, in the course of seeing this happen, Saul panicked. He disobeyed the instructions he had received, and he went ahead with the sacrifice before the prophet and judge at that time, Samuel, arrived. The excuses that he used on that occasion reveal that his thinking was not right. It wasn't a matter of just going ahead with it, but he had definite reasons that show that he did not trust the Lord in what he was doing. A lack of waiting on God is rooted in a lack of trust in God? It was for him, and it can be in our lives, too, but it was for him because his excuses was showed that he was looking at the mess rather than God. And in that chapter, I have a strategy for waiting, and the first one is focus on Christ, not the mess. And I know that's difficult to do when you're knee-deep in problems, but it does help. We need to get sometimes get away from the problems and focus on Christ and what he can do for us. King Saul had a ends justify the means mentality way back many millennia ago. He thought, well, if you offer us the sacrifice, the outcome will be good. Therefore, he was justified in disobeying God. And the lesson there is don't rely on, on the reasoning of the world. Don't fall for the trap of thinking like the world thinks. And there was a promise that God would use him to deliver 
Israel from the Philistines, at least initially, and he didn't grab on to that promise. It was just totally forgotten in, in his life. And then he seemed to trust the sacrifice more than God. As you look at his thinking, he was trusting the sacrifice. He wasn't trusting God. If he was trusting God, why would he disobey him? And it's so easy sometimes for us to trust religious behavior rather than God himself. Now, of course, Bible reading and praying and all those things are highly important, but when it comes down to waiting on God, we trust Him. We can't think that just because we are following and doing what He would have us to do, the things are necessarily going to turn out the way we want right away. You know, for me, when I was a pastor, I thought, Oh, well, you know, why is God doing this to me? I'm a pastor. I am seminary trained. What's going on here? It was that same type of reasoning. I was thinking that God shouldn't do these things because of my behavior, not because of who he is and what I might learn from him. I went through a period of my life where I was having to wait on the Lord, and God was teaching me that I needed to change. I thought my circumstances needed to change, but God taught me, no, you need to change. He brought verses to me like Galatians 6, 9, you'll reap in due season if you faint not. And then like Isaiah 40, 31, they that wait upon the Lord. I can look back at it and laugh now, but at the time it wasn't funny how often those verses came up as God was teaching me to lean on him. And as you just shared from the life of Saul, His waiting was not trusting, and I can say the same thing was true in that period of my life. And this is a journey that we all have to take. And so we can learn from King Saul so many valuable lessons, and you unpack so much more. But let's move on to Joab, another character that you talk about. Who is Joab in Scripture? Joab was a brilliant military leader, the commander of Israel's armies under King David, And there's much in Scripture that shows that he was quite a great leader. However, he did have a problem in that he was a cold-blooded murderer, and that if anyone got in his way, that he just simply killed them. And that's what he's most known for, although he was a brilliant military strategist. His life is lived attacking other people. How do you connect that with a life lived in what you call superficial faith. He could talk the talk. And the instance that I record in the book, where I believe he was facing, I think, the Ammonites and the Syrians, where, you know, he rallied the people together. If we only had that instance in his life, we would assume that he was a man of God. So he could talk the talk. You know, at times he could talk like a very mature believer, But when people got in his way, he was not so nice to them. And, you know, with the case of Abner, now Abner was a military general under Saul. And when Saul died, the sort of, he went with the northern tribes for a brief time in one of Saul's descendants there. But eventually he came to realize that, yes, he had to reconcile. And there was a time during the battles where He ended up killing Joab's brother, but it was in a time of war. 
uh, Joab's brother was trying to kill him, and so it was in a time of battle, war, and it was also self-defense. But Joab didn't forget that situation. However, as I bring out in the book, I believe there was another motive involved, and, and that is Joab looked at Abner wanting to reconcile with King David, he might have figured that Abner was going to take over his cherished position as the commander of Israel's army. In the church today, we don't necessarily see people literally killing each other, but that same angry, jealous spirit and attacking spirit can conquer many Christians and destroy many churches. What's the lessons that we can learn from the life of Joab in the church world today. What are some of the, maybe the marks that we would see this being fleshed out in our lives today? Superficial faith manifests itself the best when it doesn't get what it wants. In James 4, 1 to 3, really sums up the life of Joab in many ways. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and do not obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask because you do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Most commentaries believe that murder was not a problem with James' readers, but there are other ways that people can harm others, particularly with the tongue and with getting revenge in in a wide variety of ways. And as I bring out in the book that this applies to all our relationships, really, because so oftentimes when we're really angry with someone, It's because we think they stand in the way of what we want. And rather than trust God and go to Him in prayer about it, we contend with the person that we think is in the way of what we really want. Amen. And that's so true. And I've seen that happen time and time again, that self-centeredness in relationships can destroy even pastor-to-pastor relationships and entire churches, entire movements that God is involved in. And we've got Mm -hmm. to be selfless instead of selfish. And we see that through the life of Joab. Another character that you discuss in your book, Cancel This, and that's Absalom, the son of King David. He really allowed bitterness to come into his life and to destroy his life. And it ended in a violent death. Uh, What's the Mm -hmm. story of Absalom and how can we move beyond the bitterness that creeps into our lives? With Absalom, he had the unfortunate incident where his sister was actually raped by the oldest son of David. So it was sort of a stepson, a stepbrother, I should say, of Absalom. And Absalom was very fond of this sister. It was a blood sister. He loved her. He took, I think, believe her name was Tamara. He took her into his house, and eventually he named one of his children after her. But for whatever reason, David did not act upon what happened. He did not punish his son. He did not, well, he probably should have put him to death for what he did, but he did not do that. And over time, Absalom's anger just grew and grew and grew. And rather than trust the Lord to deal with it, he took matters into his own hands and administered the punishment himself by killing his stepbrother. And then he fled. And over time, 
the bitterness inside of Absalom just grew and grew and grew until the point where he he began a rebellion against King David and forced his dad to leave Jerusalem, and he came in, took over the palace for a while, and then he launched a military campaign against David, which he lost. Ahithophel is a lesser-known Bible figure. Who is he, and why did seeking revenge ruin his life? That is closely related to Absalom, because Ahithophel joined in the rebellion against King David, and Ahithophel was a close friend of David, a close advisor of him. And what happened there apparently was that we know from Scripture that Ahithophel was also the grandfather of Bathsheba. And so apparently after David's sin with Bathsheba and having her husband Uriah put to death, Ahithophel wanted to seek revenge against David and this grew when he fled from Jerusalem, and when Absalom's rebellion started, he joined with him. And, and from both of these characters, we see an unwillingness to forgive, an unwillingness to let go, an unwillingness to trust God in dealing with the sins of other people. We also see an exaggeration of the sins of other people versus the sins that they have committed. And one of the passages that I bring out in the book, and I think it really speaks to both Absalom and Hisophel, is the parable of the unforgiving servant, where this servant comes before this king or this mighty person, and he owes an extreme debt. That, you know, I don't know how he could have gotten in debt so much, but he was in debt with 10,000 talents, which was a huge amount of money that day. And so this king was going to have him and his family sold into slavery, but he says, no, no, don't do that. He, he pleads for mercy, and the king says, okay. He had pity on him, and he just wiped out his debts. He forgave them. And then he goes out, and he sees someone that owes him a hundred denarii, which is a far less sum, and he begins to choke him, saying, pay what you owe, pay what you owe. And that just really sums up, I think, the attitude of, of Ahithophel, that he didn't realize the seriousness of his sins before the Lord, and was always saying, and was thinking that David's sins were so much greater, and in a sense they were, but all our sins are against the Holy God. All of our sins offend our Creator, the one who died on the cross for us. And so there is a serious matter to our sins as well, and God has so freely forgiven them. And for me, you know, as I look back over the events that happened in my life, this parable helped me so much because I would go and say, okay, you know what, the wrongs against me were substantial, yes, but not near as substantial is my sins against the Lord Jesus. And I was constantly comparing them. I'd lay in bed at night comparing, okay, you know, my sins against God are worth this much and then a far lesser amount for the sins against me. And that really helped me just to let go of bitterness and anger and to be able to forgive people. And so I've come to this parable Oh, scores of times, if not many more than that.
Today's featured resource is Jonathan Brentner's book, Cancel This, What Today's Church Can Learn from the Bad Guys of the Bible. Order Cancel This when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can also order online swrc.com. We'll learn more from the bad guys of the Bible on tomorrow's program. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and has been supported for over 90 years because of faithful listeners like you. Please visit our website, swrc.com. That's swrc.com.